0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. I want to welcome everyone this morning, whether you're joining us in person or whether you're joining us online. Uh, and if you're new with us, uh, I, for the, or if you are new with us, my name is Derek Crawford, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. And we are so happy that you are here with us today, worshiping with us here. And so I hope all of you had the chance to enjoy your holiday, like maybe whether it be Christmas or New Year's. I hope you had a chance to really enjoy yours. I did because I got to actually go home for Christmas this year and I got to go for an entire week, so a very extended one, uh, where I did absolutely nothing for an entire week while eating my mom's cooking. Could I ask for anything better than that? Not really. Like It was great. and I don't normally get to do that. I don't normally have that opportunity because for the past four or five years, I've always got, I don't want to say stuck with, that's probably not good. I always <laughs> I always got the New Year's Eve uh, service. So the first service of every year, I always was put on that. And with that, I got to deliver my favorite joke every single year where I would say, this is the best sermon of the year because it was the only one. Now, that joke landed every time. Like it killed it. Like or at least I laughed. I don't know if anyone else did, but that's okay. Uh I also got a joke book for Christmas from like three people. So apparently people don't think my jokes are funny, but that's okay. Uh well anyway, I don't I don't get to say that this year because uh I got to tune in online and I watched Jennifer Colby's uh message last week and she knocked it out of the park. I thought it was awesome. Uh, so if you get the opportunity or if you haven't seen it and you want to please go and watch it. Uh, not right now, I want you to stay and listen to me, but after that, go check her out because that was that was awesome. I thought she did a wonderful job and it actually what she talked about is some of my favorite topics. I love to think about it. I love to talk to people about it. but it it always it always makes me ask myself this question, okay? so when I'm when I'm trying to to think about the topics that she was talking about last week. This is the question I ask myself, and I ask myself probably way too often, but it's this. If I believe that Jesus is king, if I believe that everything that's in Scripture, if I believe that he did all of these things, that he was this compassionate, that he was this kind, that he was all of this, then why am I not standing at, on the rooftops yelling at the top of my lungs how awesome God is? Why am I not doing everything to share the gospel to everyone out there? Obviously, I'm up here on stage, but like that line of thinking, okay, one, I don't think is super helpful. I mean, it's very shame-based, like, you know, I could be doing more, I should be doing more. Why am I not doing more? But what it helps prevent against is this idea of complacency. A lot of times, it is very easy as Christians to become complacent, where we just I don't know. It's almost like we're just going through the motions, and we don't really t- take the time to think about all that's in stock or like all that's in store. Everything that uh, God has to offer. Like, are we truly on fire for God? Are we pursuing Him with our whole, whole hearts? And are we then chasing after others to invite them into that gospel, to share that gospel with them as well? And so. It, I don't know, that, that sticks with me a lot, and again, I'm not for shame, I, I really am not, I don't carry that, uh, but I am going to tell you two stories, uh, that they're doozies, that happened to me over the, over the last uh, two weeks that just really reinforce this idea of how easy it can to be complacent. Okay, so the first one happened at uh, the Casey's General Store, okay, and it's the one at the OP, and for those of you who don't know me, I'm a regular there. Like, and when I say regular there, it's, I'm not just there once, like, I'm there multiple times a day, they know me by name, they ask me how my grandma's doing, uh, the manager has my cell phone number, like, all of this, uh, when I was in seminary, they asked me how my paper was doing, or, you know, how, how's, how's that paper going, are you done yet, are you still studying, you know, really? Your third soda? Like, you know, they know me. It's not a question of that. And not, this is not me bragging. I am not bragging, but I think it is very important for the story that I'm about to tell you guys. So anyway, one of the clerks who I don't, don't know as well, like I know all the other ones by name, but this one I don't know very well. Uh, but one of the clerks, she, she asked me, she stopped me while I was checking out and she's just like, are you a preacher at Zion? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor there. And she's just like, oh, well, there's a guy in your church that he, he's, he always talks to me and he always is inviting me to church. And she's like, and he's so nice. And she must have read my face because she's like, oh, well, you're really nice too. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not what I was doing. My face was not showing disappointment that she thought I was nice because it is not hard to be nicer than me. Like that's not a challenge uh, for anybody. But what, the, what my face was probably displaying was my disappointment and that I'm he, in here every single day, and she had to ask me if I was a pastor at Zion, and the fact that I had never once invited her to church. And so that hit me pretty hard, okay? And then, if that wasn't enough, you know, I had another story that happened where a friend of mine, uh, he was telling me, so he had been, he started to, to come to church more regularly over the last couple months, And he was just telling me a story about how he invited somebody to church. And not only did he invite them, but he also sent them the link to to Jennifer's message. And I'm like, I'm just thinking, like, over the last month, these two individuals have invited more one-on-one, had invited more people to church than the associate pastor here. Now, Obviously, my job is different, and I'm supposed to pour into the staff, but that does not excuse me from my number one job, which is to share the gospel. Now, do I push, do I push out all the, 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 the times for services? Yes. Do I invite people to church? Yes. But did I miss on the one-on-one invitation? I think so. And I'm not telling you this story because I want, I want to heap a bunch of shame on top of me, because it's not, it's not about that. But I want to use this as a clear example of how easy it is to become complacent, how easy it is to fall into this, just into the groove of being a Christian, because it's a real temptation, and I, and I, and I want to make sure that you guys are aware of that, that we have, to be, we have to be fully aware that this can happen. And I think this is going to, to segue very nicely into what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be continuing our Passport to Glacier series, okay? And every time I I hear that, it makes me want to just throw a bunch of puns out at you guys, like, let's go on a journey together, let's go explore, but I'm kind, and I won't do that to you guys, so, all right, let's take a trip with Paul, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I love that joke. Anyway... So, if you brought your Bibles uh, or you're following along uh, on the Bible app or through the Zion app, you can go ahead and get those out right now. Uh, we are going to be focusing on Galatians 4, and we're going to be working through verses 8 through 20. So, uh, you guys can follow along. I'm going to be breaking them up into to three different sections, but I'll, I'll tell you about them as, I, as we go along. So... Uh, Though this section does pick up right where Jason's messages left off right before Christmas, Paul basically takes a very dramatic uh, change uh, in tone and in approach to this letter. So it's almost like where Jason left off, that was almost like the, the climax of this part of the letter. And then Paul takes it down a different route, and he starts to address the Galatians directly, and it kind of almost pulls you out of what was happening and makes it very more personal and is almost like he's talking to the Galatians directly. So it's an interesting change in direction and tone a little bit. But since that was a couple weeks ago since Jason last uh, preached that message, I want to uh, kind of recap a little bit to make sure that we are on the same page, that we we understand what's going on. Because even though they're not, they don't build off or they don't directly connect, they do build off the premise of the one that came right before it. So here we go. Uh, I just want to start, though, by saying that the topics that are being addressed in, in this book, I think, are complicated. It is a very, even though it's not a real big book, it, it is a very complex book, and there's a lot going on, and Paul is doing everything he can to push the boundaries of what we know about religion, uh, like theology, what we know about God. He's pushing it further and further. Each, each chance he gets, he pushes it that little bit further, and today is no different. And so, anyway, uh, Paul is trying to combat false truths that are being forced upon the Galatians by these missionaries that we're going to call Judaizers. Basically, what he believes is that uh, the Judaizers are requiring the Gentiles, which are the non-Jewish Christians, to be circumcised and to follow the Torah strictly, uh, and that if they don't, or that, and that's kind of like twisting the gospel. Basically, Paul's saying that by, by demanding that, by requiring that, it's, it's twisting what the gospel represents. Okay? And so this is this letter is to push against that. He's trying to prevent them from li- like limiting the liberating power of the cross. Basically, what he's saying is that you're taking away the power of Jesus by making this a requirement. Okay? That it is it is basically taking away what, what Jesus did when he died and then was eventually resurrected on the cross it's taking the power and impact away from that. And it pushes against that idea that Jesus is enough. But then along with this, so that's the, maybe the main message he's hitting us with, there's also an undercurrent that he's kind of pushing along with this. And the idea of this is, is that there's nothing else that goes along with Jesus. or there's not. It's not circumcision, it's not the Torah, it's that the unifying factor that should be bringing all people together is Jesus. None of those other things. It's the gospel message of Jesus is the thing that should unite everyone into the family of God. Okay? And we saw that earlier in the book in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This leads directly into what Jason preached about uh, during his last message, that flowing from that promise comes this notion of freedom. So Galatians four six through seven says because you are the son because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out Abba Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So this is verse seven, and like I said, this is kind of the the climax of this story. This is like the peak of of what. Paul is trying to get at in this in this section of the book, and so this next section is like a it's like the it's the sto- it's the calm after the storm. He he's like regrounding himself as he's moving into the next movement of this book. Okay, so we're going to start with uh, verses eight through eleven. This is where we pick up today, uh, where he kind of takes a, a little bit more somber tone. Formerly, when you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Basically, Paul is saying this. Before you knew God, you were enslaved to the nature of this world. It held you captive, and you were unable to break free from it. It's this idea of whatever we worship can enslave us. And then you were introduced to God, and this changed everything. God liberated you from your enslavement. He freed you from the things in life that held you captive. Evil forces had no power over God. And now you want to follow the Judaizers who say you need to have the law and circumcision? Paul describes this as them choosing to go back into slavery. You were free and now you're putting restrictions on that freedom. The Galatians are backsliding, they are reversing, they are reverting back to being held captive. Not their old way of of life, but they're reverting back to being held enslaved to something. So there's four main points that can be drawn from this section. And the first involves the idea of slavery. Now, in this verse, when it talked about uh, the powerless forces and stuff like that, it probably was talking about, you know, Actual false gods, or gods that they they believed in the, before the, the, the true God. Now, I think if you're sitting in this room, most of us in here have probably not probably have not worshipped a false god knowingly. Now, maybe you have, but most of us probably haven't said that. However, this is still related. This is still relatable to us because it also talks about any idols, anything in our lives that that we that we put honor to, or that we that we decide to worship. It can be our addictions, it can be our sinful desires, our pride, our greed, our selfishness. And it can be good things as well. Good things are very easily turned into idols. Here's how author and pastor Tim Keller describes it. If anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. Without the gospel... We must be under the slavery of an idol. Paul is showing us our desperate need for Jesus. We were lost before God, before he used Jesus to bring us out of that captivity. And we've been set free. And so what he's doing is he's warning the Galatians to not go back into that slavery. He's, with all his heart, like that's, I mean, this gets a little bit emotional here, but he's urging them, don't do it don't slide back into your old ways now the second point that I pull from this and I think it's a it's actually a, a really interesting thing to think about but in verse it's it's all about this idea of knowing God versus being known by God okay and this happens in verse 9 and it's very intentional that Paul writes it this way he he starts out by writing it that it's about us knowing God but then switches it really quick to this idea but of God knowing us. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's he's not saying that the Galatians don't know who God is. I think that's that's pretty clear from earlier in the book, but we also know from John 17 3 that anyone who has eternal life knows God. And Paul does talk about it earlier in Galatians 3.27, where he doesn't even, he doesn't, he doesn't try to convince them that they know Jesus, he just assumes it where he says this, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. So that's not what Paul's saying. He's not questioning whether or not they know God. He's he's actually wording it more like this. How can you possibly turn back to idols since you know who God is? And more importantly, God knows you. And I think that's a, that idea of God knowing us, I think is such a such an interesting thing to, to think about and to try, to try to hold on to this idea that our knowledge of God or our knowing of God, it fluctuates. It can change, it can, it can adapt, but God's knowing of us is solid, it's fixed, it doesn't change. And I think this is one of the hardest things for humanity to understand. Because I can, I can come up here, and we probably do almost every week, but I can come up, up here and I can, I can yell at you guys, I can chuck erasers at you, I can preach this message till I'm, I'm blue in the face, this idea that you don't have to earn salvation. But then when you walk outside these doors, I guarantee it every single person in this room at, at some point will act as if they do that they need to earn their salvation. I think it's a part of the human nature. I think it's, a, it's a, part of, a deep part of our soul, that desire to be known, to be seen, to be loved by God, this idea that we need to earn God's affection. Now, I'm saying everyone in this room might say that they, they don't believe that, but I think our actions will show otherwise. I think it's something that we have to fight. I think it's something that doesn't come naturally to us. And we're all going to fall victim to it. I know that because I do it as well. I know, what, I know what the Bible says. I know it says that I don't have to earn my salvation. And yet sometimes it's hard not to say, God, will you just see me? Especially in our moments of desperation, des- especially in our moments of where we truly need him. Sometimes it's hard not to see it as something like, well, I will earn your favor. It's a hard thing to, to kind of go against. And that's why it's just, it's, it's, I, want you to, I want you to truly think about it. I want, you to, I want you to hear this. It is not about how hard we, we pursue, pursue God, okay? Yes, I just said I know that we need to be on fire for God, but it is not about how, how hard we pursue God. It's about how unshakable his love is for us and his pursuit of us. And we cannot forget that. Okay, so the third point is this idea of doing the right thing doesn't mean that it's necessarily the godly thing, okay? And so this ties kind of similarly into the, the last point I just made, but I don't blame the Galatians here. It's, in reality, what they're doing is not necessarily bad. The Jews do it, the circumcision and, and honoring the Torah. So it's not necessarily that what they're doing is, is, is bad, to them, it's it's becoming more religious. They're wanting to, to join the club, they're wanting to be a part of, of what the Jews are doing in Jerusalem. And their minds, they're 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 improving. They're, they're getting better. They're better Christians, they're better, whatever they called themselves. They want to be welcome, they want to be be a part of it. And I think we see that in the church today. I think it's. I think this is as this is as relevant then as it as it is, or relevant now as it as it was then. Nobody wants to feel like an outsider. Religion, history, tradition—they're strong motivator, motivators. It's easy to want to look, sound, dress, behave, and pray like other Christians. No one wants to be that odd man out. No one wants to look like they're different. And so I I I understand what the Galatians are trying to do here. And I'm sure the message from the Judaizers was very appealing. It probably did feel like the godly thing to do. But I think that's an important distinction. That doing the, the thing that feels good or the good thing is not necessarily the same thing as knowing God. So I'm going to use my job here at the church, for example. I spent my Monday of this past week putting away decorations and cleaning up some of the youth area. Okay? Now, was this a good thing to do? Yes. Did it need to be done? Yes. Was it godly? Was it my calling? Probably not. And so there's, there just needs to be this, I just, I think it's pointing to this distinction that's happening here that just because something is a a good thing doesn't mean it's necessarily a godly thing. And so what Paul's doing, he's trying to remind them that, showing them that just because this looks like it is the right thing to do isn't the thing. It's actually taking you away from the godly thing. It is blinding you from what God's truly calling you to do. And I think that's, that can happen to us. I think religion and tradition can blind us from following our calling of God. And hear me out. I'm, I'm the first one to say I love church tradition. I, I push it. I, I think it's important. I think it's stuff that you can build upon. I think it's, it's the foundation of churches. But I think if it gets in the way of the gospel, it's now a problem. And I think that's what, what Paul is doing here is he's showing that, that it's distracting you. It's pulling you away from what the true message of the gospel is trying to say. Now, the final point centers around this idea of, of weakness of, of anything that's not God, okay? So basically, every part of the Galatians' old lives were weak, uh, so basically, any of those other gods they worshipped, anything else they did, was weak when it came to salvation. Nothing of it, nothing was going to, to, to get them to salvation, okay? And so, nothing of it was going to be powerful enough to over, overcome God. And that includes the law. And so, and why this is, is not because the law, law, law is invaluable. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not that the law is invaluable. It's not that it doesn't teach good things It's that the second that it has to come through humanity is where it's going to fail. Anytime you put something into humans' hands, (laughs) we're going to mess it up. We're going to figure out a way to make it not work. And so he's showing that the law is weak because it requires flesh. Romans 8.3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, it was weakened by humanity, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in the flesh. So, all this being said, what Paul is trying to do is whether he wants to or not is he he kind of lets his emotions out towards the end of this. He's frustrated, and it just kind of comes out. I think any of you that maybe, have, have you ever written a letter to somebody, and by the end of it, your emotions start to get get in there? I think he he does towards the end of some of these verses. And I think they're intentional, but it does show his level of frustration because he knows that this behavior that they're doing, that it's likely to do undo everything that they've built together. The last time that he, he, he came there, when he built the church, when he... Uh, as they, were, as they were crafting what the church was going to look like, he's saying that if you go down this path, if you choose to follow these Judaizers, that is going to undo all of that. And so he wants to push against that. He wants to, he wants to do everything in his heart to, cha- to, to change so it won't become a waste. That it's not going to waste their time and energy and that he wants to point them back on the right track. And so here's the second section of verses. So now we're going to be doing Galatians 4, 12 through 16. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know it, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God as if I were Jesus Christ himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Here Paul uses himself as an example. And this is something that that teachers used to do. Basically they said, "Hey, hey, look at me and follow me. And this might feel weird for today's culture. It'd be like me standing up here and telling you to look at my life and follow my my perfect example. Like, see all my greatness and follow it. Like, that's weird for today's standards, right? Like, you're going to be like, that's sideways. We're not doing that, right? Uh, Should I set a good example? Probably. Like, I think that's probably pretty important. But this is something a step further. Teachers were known to say, look at my example. Look at my look at my persecution, look what I've done as a way of, of teaching, as a way of showing people what to do. And so this would have been very normal in this context. And I think it is still relevant today's culture. I think there's so many churches that we see in the news and stuff where if the, if the, if the pastor falls or if something happens, that the church normally crumbles as well. That we put so much stock in and who we're following, okay? And I think this is an important message to to each of us is to to be careful who we are following. I hope that it's not me. I hope that it's not Jason. I hope that it's not Paul. I hope that we are pushing you towards following Jesus, that he should be the the role model. He should be the thing that we emulate, that we should should try to get to know him. And then the more and more that we try to uh, connect and be like him, we will start to That new creation will happen in us, and then that will start to change who we are and how we interact with the world, okay? And so, I just, I don't know, I know that's not exactly what this section's talking about, but I do think it, I do think it is, it's an important distinction to kind of pull out as you're, as you're seeing that, that they did regard him as, as this, as this great teacher, and he, he clearly used his life as an example, because what he was trying to do is he's trying to connect with his readers, And like I said, this was common for teachers to do, but Paul also saw himself in similar light as the Galatians, okay? He made the decision to reject the practices of the Torah observance and live like Gentiles at times. In 1 Corinthians 9, 21, it says this, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law, Okay? His mission was to chase after the Gentiles, and he was willing to change in order to do so. That he would pursue, at the, he would pursue after them in any way that he can, that he could connect to his, his audience. That he would become a Gentile if he needed to be a Gentile. He would do everything to reach those people that need to be reached minus one thing, as long as it didn't compromise the gospel. Now, I think this, uh, like, this is why I think he was so successful, is that he did. He dove right into communities. He tore down barriers. He, like, the whole book of Acts is all about telling this story about him, just his missionary work, and how how he did that. He would just go and put himself into these situations, and I think this is this is so important. As we get to the end, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this, but I want to introduce it now because I want you guys to be thinking about it. What, what would a church look like if we acted as Paul does? What would it mean for our ministries? What would it mean for uh, how we operate if we were to take that same mentality as Paul and we would do everything we can to pursue the lost everything we can to chase after the people that are broken the people that need jesus are we willing to be that flexible are we able to adjust that much and not lose sight of the gospel are we willing to do that so think about that you don't have to answer now but if you have the answer no don't shout it out that'd probably be weird (laughs) Because probably one of you probably does have the answer, and then I'll get way distracted. So anyway, what Paul was trying to do is he's trying to reinforce his relationships that he has been that he has built over time, okay? So he's like pulling on that relationship thread is kind of what he's doing here to remind them of that connection, remind them of that relationship that they share. And that's why he recapped the time when uh, the Galatians took him in during his time of need. When this this translation talks about illness, uh, other translations call it more of injuries, like um, he was injured, and he came to Glacia to, to, to recuperate, and that even though he was bloody and, and gross and like probably swelling on his face, they took him in anyway, and they treated him like Jesus. They treated him with love. And this connects back, uh, when I preached last time, I talked about how uh, that when he... So basically, it's in Galatians 3.1, when he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. Okay, again, the Galatians would not have seen Jesus being crucified. And so what probably was happening here was Paul was referencing his own trials, that he suffered persecution in the name of Christ, that he bears the marks of Jesus, that he wears the, the, the pain and suffering that comes with chasing after God. And so I think that's what, I think that this is what it's trying to show here, that in the times of need, when he was at his lowest, when he was at the the end of his ropes, when he was beaten, when he was defeated, that the Galatians brought him in and that they loved him. They showed him honor. They basically treated him as if he was Jesus himself. They received him with joy. And so what, in verse 15 though, Paul believes that the Galatians' attitude towards Paul has changed. He claims that they no longer are sharing that blessing with him, that they no longer are receiving him with joy, that they once held him at such high esteem, that he's this, this great teacher, he helped found this church, that he was held with such honor. And so he's asking them, what happened? Why are you abandoning me? Why have you turned away from me? Why are you following these Judaizers and rejecting me? He's pulling on that, that, that relationship cord. He's, he's trying to connect to them. At one point, they were so close that, they, that they, he claims that they were willing to rip out their own eye for him. I think it's more probably more equatable to our phrase of, I'll give my left arm for that. It's kind of like that or this idea that they would do anything for him. That's how important that relationship was. And that's what Paul is trying to remind him of, the the, the church of. And so Paul believes that the Judaizers have manipulated the attitudes of the Galatians. And uh, I know this sounds like a teenage drama, right? It sounds like, ah, oh, we were friends, and then this other group came in, and now you're friends with that group, and you're not friends with me anymore. And it's that is what's happening. Like, that's, that's legit what's happening. And maybe not with the, my teenage voice that I tried to do and probably failed at. Um, but that is what's happening here is that he feels like that they are manipulating them, trying to pull them away from Paul so that they'll stop listening to Paul and that they will start to listen to, to them. Uh, and that's human nature. I think that's, we, we, all, we all have had that happen. I think we've all been a part of friends groups where that's happened, or where we've lost a friend that's, that's uh, you know, ruined our trust. Like, I think that's something that's very, very natural. I think it happens all the time, but what Paul's trying to do here is he's trying to remind them of the truth, that they're telling you false information, and that I am offering you God's truth. I'm offering you a law-free gospel, and it's saying that this is what God is telling you. This is God's truth. And so he casts this vision, and he, he did it earlier in the book, but he cast this vision of Jews and Gentiles sitting at one table without being divided by the barriers of the law, one family in Christ. However, the Judaizers are pushing back and making Paul look like he's presenting a watered-down gospel. A gospel that doesn't offer all the benefits, that doesn't have all of the, uh, I don't know, doesn't have all of the, the doesn't fully offer everything that circumcision and the Torah might. And so Paul is pushing hard against this. And I think uh, this serves as an important reminder that it's easy for us to get distracted, that it's not only of the the, the things of this world, it's not only of our, our sinful ways, but it's easy to become distracted in our calling for God. And, you know, I don't think the, the Judaizers may not even have been trying to be harmful. They may have believed what they were trying to sell. It may not even have been a, a necessarily a lie, but we have, to, we have to be able to decipher what's truth and what's not. And It's hard, and that's why we have to turn to Scripture. That's why we have to be reminded of these stories. Okay, so now we're going to move into our last part of the verse. So Galatians 4, 17 through 20. Those people people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So the Judaizers prided themselves on being zealous. They were wanting the Galatians to be zealous as well, but they wanted it to be for them and for what they were doing. And basically they wanted them to be a part of their club and they wanted them to push Paul out. And they're saying that this is the right and religious thing to do. And but Paul's pushing back and he's he's using that friendship to kind of hold them connected. But I believe there's a major point Paul's making here, and it's that being zealous, being on fire for God isn't bad, that this is this is a good thing, but it can easily be misplaced. Paul, in the early part of his life, he was he was zealous, he was persecuting Christians left and right, but that was a wrongly placed zeal. And so basically. What Paul's saying is that this is good. I want you to be on fire for God, but I want you to make sure that you are truly on fire for the right thing and not being swayed, not being uh, manipulated into being zealous in the wrong way. And it can't be something that you only do when I'm around. This is something that has to be sustaining. This is something that has to you has to be able to do whether I'm in your presence or not. This needs to be your pursuit. And Paul thinks the Galatians are are falling for this courtship. They think that they that that is why that the Galatians are treating him differently because they are buying into everything that the Judaizers are selling. And he thinks that yes, I mean he is hurt. He thinks that this is going to break the relationship between him and his his congregation, between him and uh, the people, his friends. But more importantly, he thinks it's going to pull them away from the gospel. He thinks it's going to manipulate what the gospel is telling them. And that is what he's fighting for. And Paul does. It seems like he cries out in anguish a little bit at the end. Uh, he addresses them fondly as children. He's, he does set up this dynamic of, of a parent and a child relationship. And he uses that parental metaphor uh, and puts a little surprising spin on it, but he does use it. And Paul is witnessing the Galatians turning back to their former state of slavery. He sees it. He, he sees that they're doing this. And he's fearful that he'll have to start all over with them. He thinks that this is going to ruin them and that it's going to, it's going to basically, it's almost like they didn't complete the process. It's almost like they didn't truly accept Jesus. And that's what he's, that he, that's what he's fearful of. Now, that's not what he's saying, but that's what it feels like. And so Paul is reaching out in anguish, in pain, and he describes himself as a mother in labor pain, struggling to give birth to the Galatians again. And I actually got stuck in an awkward birthing conversation this week, and now I have to preach on it, so it's like, it just follows me everywhere I go. Uh, but I think when he's talking the struggle they're talking about here isn't about <laughs> birthing itself, but Paul is wrestling with them back. He's trying to pull them them back on the right path and that is what he's wrestling with. that is what the, the what pains him and he's not there. he can't be there in per- person. he's away And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to put his heart out there and he's trying to he's trying to express that feeling of them turning away. And I think this idea of, of be pouring into somebody, trying to get, get, putting all your time and energy into someone just to see them make a bad decision. I think we've all felt that before. I'm sure every parent in the room have poured into their, their child just to, to watch them make, a, make a, a foolish decision. I think we all have had those friends that have broken our trust at one point. I think probably all of us have been that friend that's ruined the trust of another friend. I think we can relate to this. I think that pain that he feels, that feeling of, of, of it not working, that feeling of, of trust being broken, that has to hurt. But what Paul's doing here is, even though it may sound like he's defeated, he's not He's he's showing the emotion that he feels, the care that he has for them, and how much he doesn't want that to happen because he's about to the the rest of this book where the Holy Spirit's starting to come into it, uh, he's gonna hit he's gonna hit it home. And so this section of verses is is basically him humanizing what he's doing as he pushes into this next section. He's trying to connect with them in a way that they can truly understand and listen to what's gonna happen next. And so, I'm going to invite the band to, to come forward as I come into, this, uh, into the close of this, of this sermon. But I want to ask you the question, where does this section of verses leave us today? When I, when I reflect on this scripture, I think we must look at it through the lens of the church. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to use Zion, but know that I'm talking about the entire family of Christ. As a church, we must understand how easy it is to become enslaved by the world. Remember the first section that I talked about? It is so easy to fall into the, to the temptations of this world. And we may have the best intentions. We may go at it where we're, we're, we're trying. We're not trying to uh, manipulate things, but we lose sight of God's command. We lose sight of what God's calling in our lives. And I think this is especially true when we look at our our personal struggles. Though we may know Jesus, and more importantly, he knows us, we can still sometimes let those addictions take hold. We can have our, our addictions, our causes, our sinful ways, they can get in the way of how we experience the gospel. And it's important to know because our people, our congregation, our brothers and sisters, they are going to struggle with this. Each and every one of you are probably going to struggle with this at some point. And we as a church, we need to be aware of that and we need to be willing to step in. Just like what Paul is doing here. I hope that if I go off course, if I go sideways and you guys notice it, I hope that God sends someone like Paul in my life to get me back on track. And I hope we as a church that we can be that for one another, that we can do it with love, that we can do it with truth. That the gospel doesn't change. Now, I know he talked about it. Uh, he kind of set this up, and this is going to be the big idea that I want to that I want to end with. It's this idea that, and I, I do believe that it's not just it's not Zion saying this, it's not this church, it's not Jason, it's not me. I truly believe that this is God's calling. This is God's purpose. This is what God is outlining in the book of Galatian. This is what his, his charge for the church is. He clearly is, the church is not just something that came out of, of, of Christ dying on the cross. This is a part of God's redemptive plan. He, he is using the church to fulfill this redeeming message, to fulfill our bringing us back into the fold, bringing us back into oneness. The church is a part of that. We have to realize how important that is and that we have a role to play in that. And that's why the, the big idea that I'm setting up here, the thing that Jason talked about a couple of weeks ago, how important this truly is. We need to understand that it is God's purpose to build one large multi-ethnic family where we relate to him on the basis of faith alone. This is God's plan. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like here on earth, that we are one family, that we have been freed through faith in Christ. And it doesn't matter our sex, it doesn't matter our race, our gender, our political affiliations. It doesn't matter how much money we make or how much money we don't make. It doesn't matter. None of that separates us because God unites us. He brings us together and that we are to form one family. And I promise you, this is going to be hard. I I know that, and I hope that you guys are on board for this as as we continue to craft and make this church into what we know it can be, that we are representing what the gospel tells us to do, that we don't back down, that we do hold strong. But here's the part that I think is challenging. Here's what I pulled from watching Paul interact with the Galatians through this text. There might be people in this room who look at Zion and say, man, we are welcoming. We do have people at every single door. We are inviting. We have people that, uh, yeah, everyone's welcome. Come join us. But I wanna read this, 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 this challenge from Tim Keller because I think it, it puts it all in a different perspective a little bit. So I want you to listen. I want you to listen to carefully. A ministry that's energized by the gospel is flexible with everything apart from the gospel meaning this are we willing to be flexible in every area of our life that we can pursue the people that are lost so that we can make sure that they know the gospel that they know who jesus is are we willing to adjust our ministries adjust how we behave how we talk so that we can make sure that everyone feels welcome that they are seen and that they know god Are we willing to make that type of change, that type of stance without compromising the gospel? Because I believe that's why Paul was successful. I believe that's why he was able to, to do what he did because he was willing to meet people on their terms. He didn't care who they were. He didn't care. He was just trying to connect and he was trying to show them how valuable this gospel message is we need to be a church that does that. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for this time that we get to come and learn a little bit about you. Lord, as we go out in this week, Lord, just, I don't know, just give us the courage, give us the strength that we can, that we can live life like Paul, that we can or you, in fact, Jesus, that, that when we go into communities, that we are willing to see them, that we are willing to be a part, that we are willing to, to break down barriers, that we are willing to invite people into the gospel, that no matter what our church tradition, no matter what, what we do, it doesn't get in the way of your gospel, that the message of Jesus, the message gets to them, that they can live it and experience it. So, Lord, we ask all of that of you today. Lord, we lift you up. We love you. We praise you. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.